Well, good evening. Good to see all of you tonight. So just a reminder, next week we finish the study of Philippians on the 11th. On the 18th, we're not going to have Bible study. For those of you that are interested, we're going to come here and we're going to go Christmas caroling in this neighborhood right to the south of the church. And then we're going to come back and eat Christmas cookies. Uh, the 25th is Christmas, so we're not meeting then. And we're not going to meet on the 1st of January, but we'll come back on the 8th, all right? And we'll start into the new year on the 8th on Wednesday night. So that gives you sort of an idea of where we're headed over these next couple of weeks. So tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 14. And I want to talk to us tonight about the presence of God and the sufficiency of God and how it ties into our joy. And Paul's going to talk to us a lot about these two things. How do we experience the presence of God and the sufficiency of God? What are the results of the presence of God and the sufficiency of God? How does it tie into our everyday life and all of that? He covers all of that in verses 8 through 14 tonight. So I want to begin, first of all, in verses 8 and 9, where you'll notice at the end, though, of verse 9, Paul doesn't talk about the peace of God anymore, the gift of God's peace that he did in verse 7 that was a gift from God to them when they brought everything under God and brought everything to God. But now he says, I'm not talking just about the peace of God. Now I'm talking about the God of peace will be with you. In other words, he's saying the very presence of God will be with you. But here's the thing, and this is something I need to continually remind myself of even though I know it. This word with is really important here. And this is why it's important that we go slow through the word of God and that we really contemplate each and every word because every word was chosen by God. Every word. Every word is designed by God to, to have a purpose, if you will, behind it. And this word with isn't just like God just wants to come here like we say, you know, God's presence is here, whatever, and, and just hang with us. That's not what God wants to do. I'm not saying God doesn't want to hang with us, doesn't want to just hang out with us and whatever, but that's never the intent of God's purpose or God's presence being with us. No, no. God's presence is with us so that he can change us and be transformed by his presence. That's what the word with means. It is the after effects of being with God that Paul's talking about. In other words, he's saying, when we truly experience the presence of God, when we truly invite God's presence into our life and into our church's life, Paul's saying, you won't be the same. You will leave differently than when you came into God's presence because God's presence isn't just here to hang out with us. It's to transform our lives. It's to change us. 
It is speaking of the after effects that come from being with God. Now, we understand that, though, even on a human level, because there are human beings that if we hang out with them, we spend time with them, we're not the same because we've spent time with them. They, through their attitudes and actions and all of that, can change us, can put our lives in a different direction, on a different trajectory, maybe give us a different perspective, a different mindset, a different outlook. So we understand that principle. That's why the Bible says, be careful who you hang out with and who you spend time with, because we can begin to adopt those characteristics. The after effects of being with people is powerful. And God wants the same thing to happen to his people. That when we truly experience the presence of God, there will be an effect, you see. That, that's why it's so sad whenever, say, Christians, let's say corporately, come to church week in and week out, and the presence of God is there, and they leave and go home, and they're the same people that they... That, that leaves the building that they were when they came in, then there's only two conclusions that we can draw from that from a biblical perspective. Either God's presence really wasn't there at that church or they just didn't engage with God's presence while they were there. Because how can you and I truly engage with the God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who saved us, and just always stay the same? It should never be that way. And so when we talk about experiencing, engaging with his presence, again, let us as a church and let us even educate and instruct and inform other Christians. Listen, it's not just about God coming, sitting there in the seat and hanging with us and being with us and, and making us all feel comfortable and everything. And that's great if that's part of it, but God doesn't want to just hang with us. He wants to transform us. He wants there to be lasting effects that are built into our lives by him being with us. With that said, Paul here then in verses 8 and 9 shares with the Philippians, and here's how you can practically see that happen in your life. Here's how you and I can engage with the very presence of God in a way that will be transformative. By the way, I, I'm using that word a lot because God has been speaking to me a lot about that because I truly feel like this worship series that we just went through was very transformative for our church. It may be the most transformative series that I've ever done in our church where I've actually literally seen a change in our church over 14 weeks from the time we got started to the time we finished. That's good. That not only means God showed up and that God was here, but that we were truly engaged with God during that time and that we didn't stay the same as a church from the beginning to the end. God always wants it that way with his people. So Paul says, here's three things. And I'm just going to share with you, for those of you that take notes, here's how I understand this. It's all about our head. I want to get these in the right order. Our head, our heart, and our hands. Our head, our heart, and our hands. First of all, Paul starts with our head. 
Notice he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think. Head, think about these things. If I was writing a translation of a Bible, a, a Bible here, instead of using the word think, I would choose the word meditate. Because the Greek word is really not just thinking about something, it's pondering it. It's mulling it over. It's meditating on it. Some of you may say, Pastor Jeff, do you believe in Christian meditation? I absolutely do. I believe it is absolutely biblical. I don't believe in transcendental meditation. I don't believe in worldly meditation. And here's the difference. Worldly meditation is empty your mind of anything and of everything, and then whatever just pops into your mind, then start thinking or meditating on that. Nope, no, no, no. God says you'll get yourself in trouble like that. But what we do is we have, in the first part of verse 8, in fact, the majority of verse 8, what we are to sort of drill our minds down into, you see. Focused. Meditate on God, on his character, on his nature, on his word, on all these things. In fact, as I was studying these, true, worthy of respect, just, pure, all of that, guess who embodies all those? Jesus. So here's a good thing for all of us. Just meditate on Jesus because he embodies every last one of those. It's never hurtful to meditate on Jesus, who he is, what he's done, all those things, you see. Meditate, consider, ponder. And, and here's the other deal with that. That takes time, doesn't it? And so often we, you know, we have, we're so busy and we have so much to do during the day, we, we go through a day and, and we can't even spend five minutes meditating on these things. And then we wonder why the presence of God doesn't maybe seem real or, or again, you know, like God's person and God's presence is far away. Paul says to the Philippians, well then, meditate. Think. Allow your head to be filled with God's thoughts and with thoughts of God, you see. That's one way to experience the transformative presence of God. Second, heart. In verse 9, Paul is really describing for us the process of discipleship. So I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that when we talk about the sufficiency of God in verses 10 through 14. He's really talking to us about the process of discipleship. Because notice what Paul says, what you learned and received and heard and saw in me do. That's discipleship. It is being so close to a few other Christians that they catch how we're living, that they can see how we're living, that they can hear the things that come out of our mouth, that they can learn from us and, and catch it, that there's a transmission going on from one Christian to another. That's discipleship. And that is actually the duty and responsibility of every Christian in every church. Jesus said, go and not get people saved. He said, go and make disciples. How do we make disciples? By linking Christians with other Christians and having 
these Christians rub off on these Christians and these Christians rub off on these Christians and be close enough that you and I can't disciple if we're not close enough to people to be able to see them on a regular basis and hear them and learn from them. But the key to all this, though, is that you and I can hear things from others, see things from others, and learn things from others, and it's still not affect us if we don't, and here's the key word in verse 9, receive it. That's the heart. Because what that word means is allowing it to penetrate us and make its mark on our inner person. And all of us know we can be in an environment where I'm seeing things, I'm hearing things, I'm learning things, but it's not really making a difference because I'm really not taking it for my own. I'm not receiving it. I'm not allowing it to penetrate my heart and make a difference in my life. So Paul says, not everybody, obviously. We gotta, you know, you gotta be careful, you gotta be cautious, and it's not gonna be a lot of people at any one time, but those that God directs you to be close to those that God maybe gives you opportunity to be close to or, or whatever, because there are no, you know, just happenstance with God, no just coincidences. If God allows you to connect with somebody and get close to it, there, there's a reason for it. That there's mutual benefit and profitability for those two Christians to get together in that way where they both not only affect the head of each other, but where they're affecting the heart of each other, and both are allowing each other to penetrate the heart. Otherwise, it won't stick. It won't, it won't last. It won't be sustained, because you and I all know that something that really doesn't penetrate our heart doesn't last. The things of our heart, which is why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because where our heart is, that's what's really important to us. That's what's of value and of worth to us. So when we allow things to affect our heart or people to affect our heart, it really matters, you see. And so that also brings up the very important point that God wants to use other people in our lives to affect us. They are his instruments in his hand which is why he commands us to make disciples. And that's not just the leaders of the church's responsibility. That is every Christian's responsibility is where we are all to make disciples. All of us are to realize that we are being seen and heard and others are learning and catching and all of this, but we need to be a little bit more intentional about it. It's not just something that just happens passively and, and happens, but no, to, to truly disciple means you, you put forth effort to get with somebody at least on a regular basis so that there can be that seeing and hearing and learning and receiving from each other so that both can benefit from that relationship. I'll throw out a verse from the Old Testament, Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. Same principle. So, head, think, meditate. That's one way to experience the transformative presence of God. Second, heart. That's another way, actually, to experience a transformative presence of God because God's person and presence can be used through other people in our lives to change us. Finally, in verse 9, the hands. Because then Paul says, and what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things. 
It's not enough just to talk about it. Got to do it. I got to actually do it. And by the way, a better to me word even to use that would match the original translation here would be the word practice, which implies that it's something that is regular. It is, it's a discipline. It's a habit. It's something that I do on a regular basis because it is only through practice that we get proficient at anything in life. If I don't practice something, if I just do something once a year, then I'll never really get any better at it. But if I do something on a weekly basis or even do something on a daily basis, after a while, we get more proficient. And that's exactly what Paul says. And he's not being legalistic here. Not, in other words, just like just checking off a box and going through the motions. No, again, why? Because Paul said, no, these things have penetrated my heart. And I do them not because I feel I have to or because they're my duty or obligation. I do these things because I want to. Because why? Because they're drawing me closer to the very person and presence of God. Let me give you an example. Prayer. Every time we pray, we're what? We're coming into the presence of God. Well, if I truly love to be in God's presence, then I'm going to want worship. Why would I not want to worship? Because when I worship, I connect with God. I connect with this person. I get, so why do I not? Because I want to be in his presence. I want to experience him. And the more that we worship, the more that we pray, the more that we're in his word, guess what? The more we're changed. The more we're transformed to be like Jesus. Because again, the word with, the God of peace will be with us, is speaking about the after effects of being with someone. In this case, the after effects of being with God. And I know you know what I'm talking about. Because all of us have experienced that where, and I'll just use this as an example, I could have a really bad attitude or be in a bad place. But somehow, through the grace of God, I experience his presence or his person. Maybe it's through him drawing me. Maybe it's just through, you know, his mercy, his compassion. But, but he, and, and when I begin to get into his presence, all of a sudden, things change. My perspective changes. My mindset changes. My head changes. My heart changes. Things begin to change. And I, I leave being in the presence of God a different person than when I went into the presence of God. Think of the Psalms. How many psalms do you read? And you, at the beginning, the psalmist, whether it's David or some other psalmist, you know, they're complaining and all of this and they're not in a good place. And by the end of the psalm, they're praising the Lord and they're in a much better place because you and I aren't going to change apart from being in God's presence or with his person. The only way we can truly be transformed from the inside out is to be in his presence, which is why the Bible teaches us if we're struggling spirit spiritually, the last thing you want to do is give up going to church and giving up prayer and giving up being in your Bible. And again, you may not feel like doing it, but if, if you have learned to develop a habit, if it has become your custom to practice and do these things, then here's the other thing. Even when you and I don't feel like it, and we always won't feel like it, I don't feel, this may come as a surprise to some of you, I don't always feel like studying the Bible or reading it, but I do it. And guess what I find? Sometimes even, 
I can even leave my time in the Word of God and still feel like, eh. But guess what? I know God used that, though. That was another seed that was planted. And later on, I realized God used that time in my life, whether I even realized it or not. I was doing these things. So, Paul says, Philippians, I want you to experience the presence of God and be transformed by his presence and by his person because that brings joy to our life. And here's how you do it. Think, meditate, head, receive, penetrate, heart, do, practice, hands. But then look at verse 10. Now he begins to transition to the, from the presence of God to experiencing the sufficiency of God. And he has several things to say about it in these verses ahead. First of all, he says, though, I have great joy in the Lord because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before but had no opportunity to do anything. The Philippian church was one of the poorest churches and they couldn't help out a lot, but when, when they could, they did. In fact, more so than some of the churches that were more well-to-do and well-off. Paul talks about that. But here's the deal. They just wanted to encourage Paul with some kind of gift to let him know while he was in prison, hey, we're thinking of you, we're praying for you, we're with you. And that's why they sent Epaphroditus to Paul in Rome from Philippi as their representative from their church to minister to him, to not only send a gift physically, but to send an actual person to be able to administer that gift and help out Paul any way that they could. But notice what he goes on to say. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I have experienced times of need and times of abundance, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. Let's go back, first of all, to verse 10. I have great joy in the Lord. Because that's what this whole epistle is about. The joy of the Lord. But remember, the word joy is connected with the word grace. The word grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S in the Greek language. The word for joy in the Greek language is kairos, C-H-A-I-R-O. They're very connected and they're very similar. And the meaning of the word joy is literally to be grateful for God's grace. That's why we can experience joy in our life no matter what our circumstances. Because we're glad for God's grace in our life. First of all, a grace that is always accessible. God never shuts his grace off from us when we need it. And second, another reason why we can be glad and grateful for God's grace always, because it's sufficient. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12? His grace is sufficient for me. Let's go back, first of all, to the first one. Why can I be glad for God's grace? Because it's always accessible. Remember the writer of Hebrews says, Let's come boldly or confidently to the what? The throne of grace, to find grace, to help in our time of need. Anytime we need God's grace, it's accessible because God's throne is always accessible because we can always approach the throne of grace and of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's accessible. I can always be glad because I know help is always available to me as a Christian. And second, 
When Paul had the thorn in the flesh, asked God to take it away, God said, no, I want you to keep it, but I'm going to give you my grace because my grace is sufficient for you, that there's another reason to be glad, that if, if God chooses not to change our circumstances or our situation in life, God does promise every one of his children, I will give you my grace, and that my grace to navigate that situation and that that circumstance will be absolutely sufficient if you are open to it and you don't push it away or reject it. And so that's why we can always have joy because there's never going to be a situation or circumstance in my life that God's grace is not accessible and that God's grace is not sufficient. No wonder Paul said, I have joy in the Lord. Because Paul himself was experiencing that joy and that grace in prison in Rome. He wasn't down, he wasn't discouraged, he wasn't, you know, his bottom lip wasn't dragging the ground. He was like, you know what, God has a purpose for me being here and he gives me grace every day to be able to deal with what I need to deal with and, and I can always go to his throne and get more grace when I feel like I need it. Glad for God's grace. That's why, again, our joy is never tied to our circumstances. Our joy is always tied to God and to experiencing his presence in our life. But I want to talk a little bit more about this sufficiency because, again, we started to talk about that by mentioning joy and the grace that is sufficient and accessible to us. But then notice something else here. Up in verse 11, Paul says, I'm not saying this to try to get more out of you. I, I'm... I'm I'm glad that you shared what you did with me, but I don't want you to think that the words that I'm using now to thank you for that is that now I'm looking for more, Paul said. No. In fact, he says, I have learned to be content in any circumstance. Now, there's two words for learn that Paul uses here, one in verse 11 and one, uh, if I can find it, in verse 12. They're translated the same in English, but they're two different words in the original. So I want to make that differentiation because it's important in understanding what Paul wants to say here. First of all, the word learned in verse 11 is through discipleship. Paul is saying through being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, I learned to be content. In other words, it was a process. And it's really still an ongoing process, which also means, guess what? It takes time. You and I don't get to just automatically land in contentment land. That, that doesn't happen. Paul says the only way a Christian gets to the place of true contentment, biblical contentment, the kind of contentment Paul's going to describe here, is through being a faithful follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And going back then to being a learner, which is what the word disciple, methetes, in the, means. Just a learner, someone who's willing to follow and be teachable. That's what a disciple is. So Paul says, I had to learn these things the hard way or through experience and through life situation, and I'm continuing to learn these things. So that's why we need to get people on the road of being a disciple. Because there are some things in the Christian life, if not most things, if not all things, 
They're not going to come to us just by sitting on our hands and by not doing anything and being passive. They're only going to be built into our life. God's only going to glue them into us and really affect us whenever we're part of the process and we're cooperating with God in our walk and we're being a faithful, devoted disciple like Paul. I've learned. But I also want this to encourage you. Give it time. Because again, it takes time. It takes time to relearn things and to get rid of old habits and bad habits and to develop and, and all of that new. It takes time. So don't get discouraged, you see. Keep on learning. And when you fall down or you fail, just get back up and just keep on going because we're all in that process of learning and it takes time. Nothing is automatic, you see. But then he says this, I have experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. This word learns is not through discipleship. This means through the Holy Spirit's revelation inner to me. So there's two ways you and I learn as a Christian primarily. One, the Holy Spirit will reveal things to us from his word or just from, directly from him. That's why you'll notice that he adds the word the secret. I've learned the secret. It speaks about what only the Holy Spirit can reveal internally to a person. The first word, though, means I got to put forth some effort and be a faithful disciple and discipline myself and go through the godly disciplines of doing these things and practicing them over and over and over again. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. We learn both ways. But then Paul says, but when I'm on that road of learning, whether it's through being a faithful disciple or through allowing the Spirit to reveal things to me in my inner person, he says, I can get to a place where I can be content, whether I go satisfied or hungry, verse 12, or whether I have plenty or nothing. In other words, Paul's saying, whether it doesn't matter again what my circumstances or my life situation is, I can be content. Okay, Jeff. What's it mean to be content? This is my definition, okay? So it's not the end-all, be-all, but this is my understanding of the word content. Satisfied in God's fullness. Because no matter what we have physically, materially, earthly, or temporally, or whatever, those things change. They do come and go. Some seasons of our life, we have more than other seasons of our life. Some years better than others. All the, that all fluctuates. It all goes up and down. It's like the stock market, right? It's the way our life is. But being full in God's fullness is something that's constant for us as a Christian. Because the Bible tells us we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been made complete in Christ. We are rich in Jesus Christ. We are satisfied then. We learn to be satisfied in the fullness of God himself. And all that we have because we are in Christ. So that regardless of what my temporal, physical, material circumstances and situation is, I'm good, Paul said. Because I know this. I know that even if I'm not full Physically, materially, temporally, I'm always full spiritually or can be 
because I've learned to be satisfied in the fullness of God, you see. And that's really what it means to experience his sufficiency, that no matter what I go through in life, God, his person, his presence in my life is sufficient because I'm full in him. I've been filled, as we talk about a lot here, quoting Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Or other translations, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because he's going to make sure I get to the green pastures and the still waters and all of that. But then I want to point this out. Philippians 4.13 is one of the most quoted verses that we as Christians use, either to our own selves or to others. But I want you to notice the context of Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13 isn't some ticket for us to go up to a 10-story building and jump off of it and say, well, I can do all things through Christ, so if I jump off this 10-story building, I won't splat when I get down to the bottom. No. That's not what it means, that somehow I can do something contrary to the laws that God has set in motion for the, and somehow things are going to be okay for me. No. What it means is, in the context, is that I can manage any season, any circumstance, any situation, regardless of, as Paul said, whether I am, I am in need, whether I have abundance, verse 12, in every circumstance, whether I'm satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I can navigate it. I can get through it because God will be with me and he will give me the strength to go through those different seasons of my life regardless of what I have physically, materially, temporally, earthly, all of that because that will fluctuate but God's fullness never fluctuates. I can do it. But I want to point this out, and this is something that God really hit me with. And I don't want to get too technical here, but in the Greek New Testament, the Greeks wrote differently than what we do in English. Sometimes, for instance, in a sentence, the most important word or the subject could be in the middle of the sentence or at the end of the sentence, right? Or or the, mo the thing that is being emphasized doesn't have to fit a certain place. To the Greeks, the word or words that started the sentence, that was what was being emphasized. That was what was most important. And so in the Greek New Testament, you and I can even learn what did God think was most important because he had them put that at the very beginning of the sentence. Well, in Philippians 4.13, you guess what the first two words in the Greek New Testament are? All things. Now, why is that important? Because again, Philippians 4.13, sometimes as Christians, here's where we can misapply Philippians 4.13. We use that verse to think about things like, oh, when I'm really up against some big obstacle or some big challenge or whatever, I need to claim Philippians 4.13. Man, because I've got a daunting task in front of me. And so I know that I can, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. But that's not what the verse is trying to teach us at all. What it's saying is all things we can do through Christ. All things. 
It doesn't have to be wait till something big comes into my life and then I claim Philippians 4.13 and then I can, you know, hurdle over that hurdle because I took Christ's strength. No, it's saying whether it's a big thing, whether it's a little thing, whatever it is, everything, all things in my life, I never have to do apart from God's strength. All things I do through him. I'm not just supposed to do some things through him who strengthens me. I'm supposed to live my life doing all things, even the smallest little thing that I don't think I need him for. Paul says, when you and I begin to experience the presence of God and understand what's going on here, we won't do anything apart from him. And why that's important is because when you and I learn his sufficiency, that whether it's big things or little things, I can do all things through him, then I don't get depleted. I don't, I don't get to a place where I can't, I can't help others and minister to them and encourage them and come alongside of them and disciple them because I got nothing left because I'm, I'm done. No, Paul says, when you and I live all things through him, and we live that way, then we have all the energy we need for God to use us in other people's lives to, again, encourage, comfort, disciple, train, all those things. But if we don't do all things, eventually we start to get depleted and we get sucked dry and, and we start to get drained because Life can be draining unless we learn to do not some things through him who strengthens us, but all things through him who strengthens us. Which ties in, I'll leave you with this, and then we'll come back next week and finish. That's why Paul says in verse 14, in the context of verse 13, nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. Paul's saying, look, I don't want you to think I didn't appreciate what you did. You did good, and God is happy. In fact, he's going to say that later on. God was very pleased, verse 18 at the end, with what you did. But I don't want you to think it was because I was, you know, poor-mouthing and, you know, trying to get something from you. But you did well. But the key in verse 14 is the word share. Why? Because the word means to identify with somebody. It means to, to empathize. It means to sympathize. Notice what Paul then is saying if you use those words. He said, you did well to identify with me in my trouble, to sympathize with me in what I was going through, to empathize, to, to all of that. You did well. You entered into my pain while I was in prison, and it moved you to do something about it. Why is that connected to verse 13? because that shows that in some ways they were already practicing Philippians 4.13. The reason they had the ability to sympathize and empathize and identify and enter into Paul's pain and what Paul was going through was because they were learning as disciples to not just do big things through him who strengthens me or some things through him who strengthens me, but all things through him who strengthens us. And that's when you and I discover not only experiencing the presence of God in verses 8 and 9, 
but where we learn to experience the sufficiency of God in verses 10 through 14. That's what real contentment is. Satisfied in the fullness of God and knowing that anything that I need to do in this life for God, He will give me the strength to do it. I never have to do anything. Even the most mundane thing that I've done a bazillion times, you go, well, I don't need God's strength for that. Use it anyway. Because guess why? God will supply strength to do even that little thing so that you and I don't have to use any of our own strength to do that little thing so that we can save all of that strength so that when we need to expend some of our strength, it's there so that God can use us to serve others to a much higher level. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the richness that you provide for your people. God, first of all, in your person alone, you are magnificent. You are wealth. You are the prize. You are the treasure alone. And then, God, within you, you have all the resources at your disposal of the entire universe. And you readily and willingly want to give them to your people to be able to navigate life. So God, I pray tonight that, that each of us would walk away from being in your presence here tonight a little bit different. That there will be after effects of being with you of worshiping you tonight, of being in your word, of being with your people, God. And that we will have a little bit of a better understanding of what experiencing your presence is really all about and what experiencing your sufficiency in our lives is really all about. So God, continue to strengthen us, continue to grow us as we're on this journey, continuing to learn every day more and more about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Bring us back next week, God, that we might run through that finish line tape and finish the book of, of Philippians together as one. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.